Good morning. How do you forgive somebody? One day, Jesus was talking about reconciliation, restoring relationships that had been ruptured, restoring them through face-to-face conversations. Specifically, if someone sins against you, Jesus said, go to them and tell them. The hope is that they will listen, confess, and repent, and you will forgive, and the relationship will be restored. A little later, Peter's been pondering this, and so he goes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often do I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Peter's being really generous because the rabbi said only three times, and maybe Peter's trying to kind of impress Jesus with his generosity. Jesus says, no, not seven times. But seven times 70 or 77 times, there's variations in the Greek manuscripts. It doesn't matter because it's not about math. It's about forgiving from the heart. And so Jesus then goes on to tell this parable in Matthew 18. It goes something like this. This king had all these servants, and some of the servants owed him money. One of them owed him a lot of money, so he brought him in and said, hey, I want my money. And the servant said, "Ah, I I can't pay you today. And so the king says, fine, sell him, sell everything he has, recoup some of the loss. But the servant looks at the king and and falls down before him and says, please, I I beg you, give me a little more time and and I'll pay the debt. The king looks at him and has compassion. I tell you what, listen, I'm going to forgive all of your debt. You don't owe me a thing, nothing. You may go have a great day. And so this guy, freshly forgiven, goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes a relatively small amount compared to what he had just been forgiven of, maybe a couple thousand dollars, and he grabs the guy by the neck and says, pay me and pay me now. And the guy says, oh, I I can't right now. And he falls to his knees and says, I beg you, please just give me a little more time and I'll pay it back. No. Take him to prison. Well, if Jesus, after he tells this story, says something very disturbing. He says, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Because the king called him in and said, hey, couldn't you show mercy as I've shown you mercy? You're a wicked servant. And so he orders him to be sold. How do you forgive someone? It's easy to forgive someone if they bring you a Pepsi when you ask for a Coke. I forgive you. It gets a little harder, and that's not a knock on Pepsi, I It gets a little harder if someone lies to you. It gets a little harder still if someone undermines you and lies about you and and destroys things that you are doing. And how do you forgive an abusive dad or or a mean stepmom? Forgiveness gets really difficult if a spouse 
cheats on you. How do you forgive someone if they kill your wife and your only son? How do you forgive that? Today we wrestle with the complicated idea of forgiveness as we consider the space between us. This could get a little rough this morning. And if, if it's too rough, please reach out to someone and, and talk to them. There'll be people around the room as we end today. Sean just does such a great job. And last week, as usually, he just had a great sermon. And he talked about some things that I want to emphasize. And that is that not every relationship can be, will be, or should be reconciled. I'm thinking about abusive relationships Forgiveness needs to be present at some point for your sake, but reconciliation is not wise in a lot of cases. The bottom line of forgiveness is this, we forgive. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We forgive relatively small debts because we've been forgiven of an unimaginable, unfathomable, unpayable debt. We saw it in the parable we started with. We see it in the Lord's Prayer. We just see it everywhere. Paul says it like this. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. Two Greek words that come into play when we understand forgiveness. One is a fiami, which means to send something away, to get rid of it. And so our sins are sent away, put away at the cross and no longer held against us. The other word is charizomai, which at its core, at its root, has the word charis, which is the word for grace. So forgiveness is really rooted in grace, which means that we give something to someone they do not deserve. They can't earn it. Um, it's unconditional. We just, we, we give them this. We pardon them. We, for, we forgive them. We don't deserve God's goodness and kindness. We don't deserve forgiveness, but he gives it to us anyway. So we'll build our concept of forgiveness as we go, but let's start here. When I forgive someone, I absorb the pain, I absorb the loss, I absorb the cost, I absorb the injustice of what happened. And when I forgive someone, I will not seek vengeance, I will not seek to pay them back, I will not seek a vendetta, I will not do any of those things, and I, and I will not, when I forgive someone, I will not dwell on it, and I will not use it to slander or harm the wrongdoer. I choose to forgive because I've been forgiven. When we pursue forgiveness, we begin with humility because we understand our absolute inability to save ourselves, and if God had not extended grace and forgiveness, we would have no hope. And so we embrace that grace and we rest in it and it's by that grace of God and forgiveness of God that we stand and live. And from that platform, we decide, we decide in a ruptured relationship that we are going to let go 
of our right to revenge, our right to get even, our right to pay them back. Forgiveness is letting go of a vindictive spirit. It's a form of suffering that imitates Jesus. It's expensive and it hurts. From a platform of humility, love, and grace, forgiveness does not say that what happened is okay. Forgiveness does not excuse what happened. True forgiveness names the evil. It speaks the truth about what happened. True forgiveness asks, even demands, that the wrongdoer own his or her Actions, rather than excusing them, rather than just continuing in them. Of course, some will not own what they did. They won't admit it. They won't confess. And in that case, reconciliation is not possible because for reconciliation, it takes confession and repentance and forgiveness. But even if a person doesn't confess, doesn't repent, we still forgive. From the platform of humility, love, and grace by the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. We have that power. We are empowered to deal with our feelings of rage and and vengeance and vendettas which include slander and gossip and cutting remarks about a person. We just let go of that. We let go of the hatred. Because when God's forgiveness is experienced deep in our hearts, we are enabled to move through our feelings, though the process is very difficult and painful. We're able to move through that by the power of God to a forgiveness that takes our hands off the throat of the wrongdoer. We are set free as we set them free. We are experiencing healing from God. It can be a long process. It may take years. A few years ago, Desmond Tutu and his daughter wrote a book called The Book of Forgiving. People thought after apartheid ended that South Africa would just blow up into a bloodbath, but it didn't. Instead of revenge and retaliation, there was confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. So the Tutus wrote a book about that, reflecting upon what happened. And in that book, they lay out four steps of forgiveness, which I believe are very helpful and very biblical. The first thing they say is you tell the story. You don't sweep it under the carpet. You don't deny that it happened. You tell the story because if you try to suppress it, it's going to come out in very unhealthy ways. And when you tell the story, you name the hurt. Jesus says in Luke 17, if someone sins against you, you go to them and you rebuke them. That is, you tell them what they did wrong. And you move past the facts of the story into how it hurt and how it made you feel. And there may be lament, there may be a time to vent. You just kind of get it all out as a journey to forgiveness. And then we grant forgiveness. We decide. We decide that we're going to absorb the loss, we're going to absorb the pain, we're going to absorb the injustice of it all. Because we know that we all need grace and forgiveness. It's a process rooted in that understanding. And as we forgive, we can actually learn to pray for the wrongdoer. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. For their good, do good to them. And so when we forgive someone, we can pray for our former enemy. And we can pray for their spiritual health and goodness to be a part of their life. And then the fourth step is as we renew or we release 
the relationship. Renewal is ideal because that represents reconciliation, but it's not always possible. Someone's dead, you can't reconcile with them. In an abusive relationship, renewal shouldn't happen. Sometimes couples reconcile after marital unfaithfulness. And what happens is one person confesses and repents and the other person is willing to forgive and the relationship is renewed. But other times someone cheats and they won't confess, they won't repent. The other person may still forgive but the relationship is released because trust has just been shattered. It's not possible. Okay, so we looked at forgiveness, kind of how it might work. But I think the real issue for a lot of us is, I don't know if I really want to forgive. I'm still mad. I'm still hurt. I'm still humiliated by what they did. In fact, I'd just like to see them suffer a little bit. That's kind of where I am. How do you deal with that? I think we may have to start with a little bit of a selfish standpoint. And Henry Nowen says this, which is very helpful. He says, as long as we do not forgive those who have wounded us, we carry them with us. Or worse, pull them as a heavy load. The great temptation is to cling in anger to our enemies and then define ourselves as being offended or wounded by them. Forgiveness, therefore, liberates not only the other, but also ourselves. It is the way to freedom for the children of God. How do you do that? There's a story from a long time ago, way down in Egypt, story of Joseph, you know, the guy with the coat. Joseph was severely mistreated by his brothers and others, and he forgave all of them, and he forgave all of it. He absorbed the loss, he absorbed the pain, he absorbed the injustice of it all. And instead of seeking revenge and retaliation, I'm sure he was tempted to, instead of doing that, he, he forgave. How? Why? I believe the key is found in Genesis 50, 20, where there are words that show his deep faith in a God who redeems terrible messes, a God who takes horrible things and makes good come from them, a God who works in injustice, a God who has the ability to forgive and to make good things happen. Joseph says, notice how he names the truth. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. So Joseph, in his journey to forgiveness, recognizes by faith the formative value of suffering through injustice and the way God, who also suffers injustice, sometimes mysteriously uses injustice to accomplish great things. It liberated him. It can do the same for us. Forgiveness is, is the work of God, and when we forgive, we become dim reflections of who God is. I believe forgiveness is supernatural. It's sure not natural for me. I believe it's supernatural, and it comes as we experience the love and forgiveness of God and allow that to flow into our hearts. It can be very difficult at times, seemingly impossible. But if we will receive the forgiveness of God through Jesus, and we ask him for his power to forgive. 
then he'll give it. Corey Ten Boom tells a story about this, you know, her story. She survived a concentration camp while other loved ones did not. Her sister Betsy died. It's a powerful story in the hiding place. But after the war and her survival, she went on the road to preach about forgiveness. And one day in a church, she delivered that message of forgiveness, and afterwards a man comes up to her to thank her for her words of forgiveness. She immediately recognized him as one of the most abusive guards in that concentration camp. He particularly liked to mock the women as they showered. And now he presents himself to her as one who appreciates her message, commenting on the beauty of God's forgiveness. He doesn't recognize her. He confesses he was a guard in a concentration camp, and he asks for forgiveness as he extends his hand to shake hers. Her hand freezes by her side as the painful, humiliating memories come back, just flood her mind. And his hand is still extended, and he says, will you forgive me? Here's how she describes what happened next. And I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. Jesus, supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, it raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole soul, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I think about that, and I think about the surprising and the supernatural power of forgiveness in my own life. Like most of you, I've had to forgive some pretty horrible things. And by the grace of God, I believe I have. It's fascinating. In the last couple weeks, preparing for this, here comes something from years ago. I had to relive the whole thing and forgive once again. I'm sure there's many powerful stories of forgiveness in this room. I was speaking to one of our receptionists, uh, the sweet Juanita Collins, and she was telling me on Wednesday her story of forgiving. It took a while, and it took some nudgings from God. I think it always does. And I think of the times that I've been forgiven by others for horrible, stupid things I've done. And then I think about Dave Pruitt, Donna's husband. Donna's our outstanding executive assistant, has been here for a long, long time. 
Dave, years ago, was married to Tina, and Tina and Dave had a little boy called Eddie. In 1989, Dave Pruitt was waiting for Tina and Eddie to come home. They didn't make it. He had heard there's been a terrible crash up the road, so he gets in his truck and he drives upon this horrible scene of twisted and crushed metal. Two cars. One of the cars was his wife. And she was in it. And she was dead. Dave tells all about this, and you can, look, you can read about it here in a little while. It dawned on him about his son. He said, where's my son? Where's my? He's at the hospital. So Dave rushes to the hospital only to find that his only son was also dead. Can you imagine losing your wife and your only son in such a horrible way? Oh, it gets worse. Tina and Eddie lost their lives because someone chose to, to drink, to get drunk, and to drive and crash into and kill two innocent people. How do you forgive that? Dave did. It took a while, years. And he tells his whole story in a powerful way, and we'll have a link to it in just a minute, but for now, let's just watch a portion of what he has to say. If you think that you can't forgive somebody for something that they've done wrong to you or something they've wrong, done wrong to someone that you love or care for, think again. You cannot do it alone. I will tell you that. You have to bring God into the mix. You have to ask God sincerely from your heart to relieve you of this burden. And you can't hold back. You can't give it to him and hang on to the coattail of it. You have to give it all to him. Because without it all, he can't dismiss it all. And if you give it to him, I guarantee you, he will bring healing. And that person will be forgiven and you will be able to move forward with your life. But once I forgave David Connor, I realized that Jesus Christ can forgive me also. And it took a lot for me to accept that. I mean, as a daily reminder, I have it tattooed on my forearm, you know, forgiven. Anytime I'm brushing my teeth or when I had hair, combing my hair, or you know, anytime I can see my arm in the mirror, I'm reminded you're forgiven. I hope you will go look at all that and, and you probably should take some tissues with you. It's a very, very moving, powerful story. Last year, I was blessed to travel to Israel with Brad and Gail Pontius and about 30 other people. It was a wonderful, life-changing trip. And by the way, Tim Thompson and I are going to, to lead a trip just like that in a little over a year. If you're interested at all, just want to know more, go and uh, get on our interest list. Uh, I think there's a, there was a website up there. It's on the, on the uh, bulletin. On the trip last year, we spent considerable time in Jerusalem, and for me, the most intriguing place was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Some people find it the most repulsive place because there's just all kinds of sights and sounds and smells and bells. It's a weird, it's a weird place. But I was drawn to it because of the history. The history goes back to the conversion of Constantine in 312. 
And shortly after Constantine's conversion, which changes the course of human history, his, his mother, Helena, is converted. And Constantine and Helena become quite interested in where Jesus walked. And so Helena makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And she wants to know where Jesus was crucified. This is only 300 years later. The locals have a consensus. They say it's right here. And so in 326, she orders a basilica building built over this holy site. And that is really the origin of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's been built on and remodeled many times over the last 1,700 years. But the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the place where people say Jesus was crucified. There's a rock there on which his blood with sorrow and love flowed mingled down and dripped on this rock. There's a place upstairs where you can get down on the floor and crawl for about five feet and you can reach down through the floor and touch that rock. I did that. It was quite remarkable. And after I finished, I, I sat there and just observed everybody. I was intrigued by what I saw because I was struck by the diversity of those working the site. I was struck by those visiting the site. I watched people of all different sizes, shapes, colors, languages come and go. Some were moved to tears. Some were not moved at all. Some worshiped. Some just watched. But they came. They kept coming. Why do people go there? Why do we go there? Why do they come? Why is it such a powerful point of pilgrimage? Because on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross and on that cross Jesus died to take away your sins. He absorbed the loss. He absorbed the pain. He absorbed the cost. He absorbed the injustice of it all to take, to take away your sins and mine. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave us our sins. As Jesus was in the process of dying on the cross, he'd already been beaten, he'd been bloodied. He'd been mocked and people were now spitting at him, shouting things at him, horrible things. Jesus looks at them and he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And as he spoke, a hundred billion failures disappeared. He lost his life so we could find ours here. He offers forgiveness to any and all, including you today, if you'll turn to him and ask and essentially say, I want your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. I, I can't do it on my own. I want, I want to live for you so I can live a life of joy, peace, and confidence. I want to love as you've loved. I want to live as you've lived. I want to forgive as you forgave. How do you, how do you forgive someone? You stand at the foot of the cross and you receive your forgiveness. It starts there. Find it. Receive it. Forgive yourself. Forgive others. 
We're about to enter into what we call response time. And so in just a moment, um, you can come and take communion and remember that Jesus died for you and then rose again. You can remember his forgiveness. You can remember your baptism when you were forgiven. And then it's a good time to think about your life. Do you need to forgive? Again. We'll have counselors all around the room if you want to pray. If there's somebody in the room you need to go talk to, go talk to them. We'll commune. We're going to sing. Um, you can give if you want to. You can do just whatever you need to do. If you need to be baptized today, we're ready. You don't have to arrange that in advance. We've got everything ready. Um, if, if that's your next step and you're ready, let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you for uh, this time. and Just remembering you forgave the inexcusable in us and continue to do so. May we see that um, as a beautiful, a beautiful picture of grace. And may we be motivated by that to forgive others as we've been forgiven. We thank you for this bread and we thank you for this juice that reminds us of, of the body of Jesus and the blood. Just help us, Father. Just help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can watch all of our video content, both current and past, on our YouTube channel? Visit youtube.com slash Sherwood Oaks to watch messages, series, and complete worship services.